So, we are continuing our study through the book of James. We are in James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these guys will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I see that hand there. I see that hand there. Pastors are good at seeing hands. See that hand over there? Anybody else need a Bible? Just raise your hand so you can follow along with us. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 this morning. Starting in verse 7, James writes, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall in the judgment. The title of my message this morning is Jesus is coming. Get busy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we can spend in your word this morning. Holy Spirit, thank you for being here and for showing us, each one of us, what we need to hear individually, what we need to hear as a church, Lord. We thank you for your word and how powerful it is to change our lives, Lord. And as you work through your word, we want to hear and listen to what you have to say to us. So give us open ears to receive all that you have for us this morning. We also pray, Lord, that if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially touch their hearts, help them to see their need for you, turn from their sin and turn to you today. Thank you for this time that we can spend together, Lord. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I found a list of the top five things to recognize that a person is really, really excited about Jesus' return for his church, the rapture of the church. Number five, they can remember more signs of the end times than they can the Ten Commandments. Number four, they never buy green bananas. Number three, they refuse to spend their income tax refund check because it totaled in the amount of $666. Number two, they always ride with the top down in their convertible just in case of the rapture. And finally, number one, they get goosebumps every time they hear a trumpet blast. I recently read this. There's a company called Rapture Pet Care. Okay? <laughs> These are pet caretakers are matched with rapture abandoned pets based on location and animal type. For just $10, you can register up to three pets for a volunteer caretakers to look after. Volunteers for the service are made up of atheists and members of non-Christian religions. The company points out that these volunteers love animals so much that they've agreed to care for animals after an apocalypse that they don't even believe in. <laughs> much better they get saved and care for the animal, let me tell you. Today we talk a lot about Jesus's 
a return for His church. We believe it could happen at any moment. We long for the day when Jesus will take us home to be with Him. And as we look at Scriptures, we see what Jesus would uh, say would be certain signs to be looking for just prior to His return. And we look around the world and we can't help but see the parallels, the similarities. Talk about the nation of Israel being regathered together as a nation. We know that happened in 1948 talks about earthquakes in various places, and we see that there's, there's places where there's earthquakes that are not normally earthquakes. It's happening all over the world. The technology ability, the technological ability, rather, to prevent people from buying or selling without having the mark of the beast, it's here. A castless, one-world monetary system really is on the verge of becoming reality, is it not? All digital coin, bitcoins, all of that stuff. But most of all, we see the evil in the world all around us. The sexual immorality, the murder of the unborn, the outright blasphemy, people thumbing their noses at God. So seeing all these evil things, especially as the world continues to embrace evil, the need for us to focus on the hope that we have radically increases, that Jesus is coming back. And that should excite us. That should encourage us. That's a great hope that we have a promise that we can hold on to during these dark days. But here's the, the big question. If we truly believe that, and we ought to, how should it affect us in the way that we are living? Answer, we should be occupying our time, busy doing the work of the kingdom until Jesus takes us home, either via death or through the rapture of the church. That's exactly what James is showing us here in chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Now, if you've been with us through our studies throughout the book of James, uh, you know how straightforward he is. You know, in our culture today, where everyone is offended by any little thing, oh, that offends me, oh, that offends me, what you said offended me. It's refreshing to hear James not care one bit if you're offended or not. He tells it like it is, regardless of your feelings. I like that. We also noted how James is a very practical book. Essentially, James takes these great truths of the Christian faith, shoots it right, shoots it right back in our faces and says, now what are you going to do about it? Now we know that James is the half-brother of our Lord, that he'd been with the apostles there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended into heaven. He watched his older brother slash savior disappear into the clouds. And then suddenly something else caught his attention. Two angels standing there issuing this challenge found in Acts chapter 1 verse 11. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. In other words, why are you standing around doing nothing? Jesus is going to come back just as he left. Now go out and get busy. And that's the message that James 5 has to say to us as church. No doubt, these folks he's writing to, they were discouraged. We saw last week how they were ripped off by the landowners. They had work on the land and not get paid. For many of them, that left their families going hungry. And it would have been real easy for them to get discouraged and lose hope. I think the same thing is true for our day. And how easy it is for us to get discouraged with the way the world looks today. And to just say, you know what? I'm done. I'm just going to go... Go home. I'm not going to share my faith anymore. I'm not going to tell people about Jesus and that he's coming back. I'm just going to go buy my 20 acres out in the middle of no place and stay there until the Lord comes back. (laughs) Until I hear that trumpet sound. 
But you know, that's the last thing that the Lord wants from us. James is telling us, I know it's tough, but don't lose heart. Keep looking up. Don't give up. Jesus is coming soon. Have you ever noticed that when people are hurting, it's when they frequently express their hope for Christ's return. Oh, I just wish Jesus would come back today. I admit it. I've been there many times in my life. But I've never heard anyone say, boy, things are going so great. I wish Jesus would come back right now. It's because hard times make us long for Christ's return. It's no surprise that many of the hymns would center on the return of Christ were written uh, when life was more difficult than it is today. During the time of slavery here in the United States was a time when some of the, the greatest spiritual songs were ever written, all focusing on Christ's return. Because the slaves had nothing in this world, so all their hymns were longing for heaven. So these uh, early Christians were feeling the same way. You know, their belief in Christ's promised return, added to the fact that they were beginning to really face persecution for their faith, they started thinking, Lord, when? When are you going to come back, Lord? And James is going to tell them and us to be patient, to follow the examples of the prophets, and to live with God's purpose in our lives. And that's our three points this morning if you're taking notes that we're to be patient, number one, listen to the prophets, number two, number three, live for their purpose. Number one, James is saying, first and foremost, in waiting for the Lord's return, you need to have patience. Look at verse seven. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The late Margaret Thatcher once said, I'm extraordinarily patient, provided I get my own way in the end. George W. Bush said, I'm a patient man. And when I say I'm a patient man, I mean I'm a patient man. And someone else prayed, God, give me patience, because if you give me power, I will punch someone in the face. Listen, the word that James uses here for patient, he's not speaking of, of let's say, a passive resignation, but a rather uh, patient, uh, expectant waiting on the Lord. Not a... Oh, oh, I'm, I'm just going to wait till yeah, Jesus is going to turn return. It might be today. It might be in my lifetime. I don't know. That's not what the Lord wants. Rather, an expectancy and excitement that the Lord could return at any moment. Kind of like a, a child at Christmas time who can't wait for Christmas morning to come to, to open those presents. You know, when you were a kid, man, that's all you thought about. That's all you, you talked about. How many days before Christmas? What am I going to get for Christmas? When is it going to be here? Mom, Dad, how much longer until Christmas? We'd always pester our parents until they would just say, hey, just, just be patient. It'll come. It'll be here before you know it. That's the excitement that the Lord wants us to have as we patiently wait for His return. Telling people how awesome it's going to be, sharing with them how glorious heaven will be, what Jesus has in store for those who love Him. How awesome it is that Jesus died for my sins upon the cross and rose from the grave and how my sin is forgiven. And we talk about Christmas. This, this is what Christ has done for us. It should excite us. Telling people that Jesus said He's the way, the truth, and the life and no man comes to the Father except through Him. And that's what the Lord's telling us this morning. Let's get busy. He says, my return is going to be here before you know it. Let people know. Now it's worth noting that whenever the subject of the Lord's return does come up in Scripture, there's usually an exhortation or an admonition that follows uh, right after it, connected to the action as a result. For example, in Second Peter chapter 3, 
we read in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. So you say, okay, so what? What does that mean? Well, Peter continues, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will, me- will melt forever. See, it should affect the way that we're living. Romans chapter 13, Paul writes in verses 12 through 14 that, that, that uh, we're to understand the present time. The hours come for us as Christians to wake up from our slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It says there in verse 12, the night is almost gone, the day of salvation will soon be here. So what? So what do we do about it? How should that affect me? Paul continues, So remove your dark deeds like dirty clothes and put on the shining armor of right living because we belong to the day. We must live decent lives for all to see. Don't participate in the darkness of wild parties and drunkenness or in sexual promiscuity and immoral living or in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, clothe yourself with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and don't let yourself think about ways to indulge your evil desires. So yeah, the Lord's coming back. That should excite us. But now this is the way we need to be living. Now you say, okay, but I still just don't want to wait around anymore. I, I want the Lord to come back right now. James says, okay, I understand that. And he's going to give us a farmer to look at as an example. Look at verse 7 again. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rains. Just the, the precious fruits of the earth. It gives us a picture of, of just, you know, what God has in store for us in heaven. How does a farmer wait? Well, he waits patiently. He waits expectantly, looking for that early and latter rain, he says. Of course, during biblical times, the farmers didn't have the irrigation systems that we have today. They were completely dependent upon the rain to sustain their crops. They didn't have satellite. They didn't have digital Doppler to know if rain's coming in or not. Uh, basically, again, they had no means of the irrigation that we have now. In fact, nowadays, we can send out drones. We can look at areas in the land where it's dry that needs water. We have the technology. But they didn't. They had to look for, they had to, to wait for the rain. They had to be patient, looking up, but also they took care of their crops as they waited. Now, if the farmer grew impatient, I can't wait anymore. I'm just going to go out and pull some of these. They would wreck the whole crop. He had to wait because no crop ever appears overnight unless it's a crop of weeds and they seem to come overnight really, really fast. In fact, I recently cut one down in my house and I don't, it's amazing. It sprung up in this large bush that I had and it was kind of sticking out a little bit and before I knew it, it was bigger than the bush. This is ridiculous. But to see if you want a good harvest in your life, it takes time. It takes taking care of the crops, removing the weeds. A great harvest doesn't come overnight. So when we're told to wait for the Lord, that's hard. Because we live in a society and a culture where we want everything fast. We don't want to wait for anything anymore. I mean, sometimes you can have your Amazon order filled the same day. Groceries sent to your home within an hour. Both those things. Just talk to my wife. She's done it. But I said, Lucy, what did you order this time? So naturally, as we look around the world, we see how wicked it's become. And there's this 
tendency that we can have as believers to lose compassion on the lost. And, and to say, Lord, don't you think it's about time? When are you going to come back? Just let these people die in their sins. Listen, Jesus saw things completely differently. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38. It says there, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We must understand that God has his own time schedule. God's not bound by our schedules. God will come at his appointed time. But he's also called us not to give up, but to be those laborers in the field, to see the loss the way he sees the loss, just waiting for you and I to walk up to them and share the hope that we have for ourselves with them, the hope we have in Jesus. Because one day, and one day I believe very soon, we will no longer have that opportunity. Our time on earth will be done. We're raptured or through death. Whatever we've done, it'll be over at that point. So we need to take every opportunity to use every uh, chance we get to share the love of the Lord to, to the, the world around us. That's why, again, James says, wait patiently for the precious fruit of the earth. So I believe that the Bible teaches there will be one last person, Gentile, non-Jew person saved, before the great tribulation period begins. And then we'll be raptured out of here, and then God will once again deal with the nation of Israel. That's what the great tribulation is all about. Paul said this in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. All that to say, and I've said this before, if you're not saved here this morning, would you come on already? We are waiting to leave this place. And if you're the last person not saved, come on, what are you waiting for? But you see, we don't know when that point will come. In fact, Jesus said it well in Matthew twenty four thirty six. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So therefore, we just need to be patient. And that's what James says next. Like the farmer, look at verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, reminding us, the Lord is coming back. See, James is talking to those about to collapse under the weight of, of trials and persecution. And they're getting discouraged. They go, Jesus, when are you going to come back? James says, be patient. Establish your hearts. That word established means to be convinced in their hearts of the hope of Jesus' return. Another way to translate this verse is strengthen and make firm your inner life. Let's take the analogy of a plant Again, let your roots go deeply into the soil. See, the verb conveys the thought of strengthening and supporting something so it will stand firm and immovable. God wants us to be rooted and grounded, especially when it comes to eschatology. That's a study of last days, of end times. Many Christians are not. And I put the fault that many pastors and many churches who are not teaching on end times that are out. They don't go through the book of Revelation. They don't talk about the book of Daniel. They don't go through the first or second Thessalonians. All throughout Scripture talks about it, and they just don't cover it. But I think this goes much deeper than that. 
Many Christians have not really taken the time to deepen uh, their walk with the Lord by, by having the habits of personal Bible study. They don't have the discipline of, of prayer in their life or even regular church attendance. They come when it suits them or when the weather is perfect and, and, and that's really the only time they open their Bible, if any. God is saying you need to get rooted. You need to get grounded because your faith is going to be challenged. You will be persecuted. You will face hardship. You need to know the Word. Be established in it. Because some days are filled with sunshine. And other days are filled with storms. And we need to know how to navigate through them both. You know, storms can come just like that, especially living in Missouri. Maybe you heard of this. It's called the Great Blue Northern of 1911. And 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the temperature reached 80 degrees here in Springfield. And then a northern cold front moved in. And by 7 p.m., it was 13 degrees. An almost 70 degree drop in four hours. You know, life can be that way. One day the sun is shining, the birds are chirping, all singing, everything is looking great. And all of a sudden that storm cloud appears. All of a sudden something horrible happens. All of a sudden some bad news comes your way. Some days it's one thing right after another in rapid succession. That's why James is saying, listen, be patient, dig in, root yourself in the promise that Jesus is going to come back. Don't get discouraged. Establish yourself in doing what God's called you to do. And most of all, he says, look at verse 9. Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James says, don't grumble. You know, that's one of those words that sounds like the action. You know, grumble, 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 grumble. It's not describing what our stomachs do when we're hungry. He's speaking of sort of an, an unjust criticism and a, a nitpicking sort of biting at each other's heels, you know. As Christians, listen, our numbers are relatively small. Our task is immense. Time is short. And yet we squander our time by by grumbling and complaining about each other when we should be closing ranks and marching forward. Don't do that, James says. Don't squander our time grumbling and complaining about each other. Because if we truly believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, then that should affect our relationship with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, it's one thing to get along with other believers when things are going well. It's quite another thing when we are all under stress. Because sometimes stress, you know, under stress and someone says, Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? And, and you're not really fine. And in a church, we all have different personalities. Yet we're all a part of the body of Christ. And we need to have that unity as believers. But you know, the devil, he's always there trying to break that unity. One man said, two chickens tied at the legs and thrown over a clothesline may be united, but they don't have unity. You you can be at each other's throats. Oh yeah, we're united. James is writing to people that were in such a miserable state that they were very easily at each other's throats. Close Pressures had made them jumpy and quick to take offense. This had to stop. And that's why James, again, for the third time, focuses on on the soon return of Christ. He says, Behold, the judge is standing at the door. This is a, a dramatic image here. The Son of God, to whom is committed the judgment of the world, is at the doors of the judgment hall. 
ready to throw them wide open as he strides there to the judgment seat. It's interesting to me how that fits into what the Apostle Paul said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. That Jesus, the judge, sees everything. And if we've been grumbling and complaining in the body of Christ, yet we're still going to be saved as by fire, but all of our works are going to be burned up. Listen to 1 Corinthians three thirteen through 15. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. Listen, I don't want to end up in heaven like barely escaping through a wall of flames. What's the time? You smell like smoke. Man, that's really bad. Listen, our lives should reflect this truth that in everything we do and say, we seek to bring glory to God. Everything. There are many applications for verse 9, but the primary one for us is that as we wait for the Lord's return, don't start arguing, don't start complaining and griping about each other. Keep our focus upward, not on one another. And if it is on one another, it's only to build them up, to encourage them, to pray for them, to help them in their walks for the Lord. And then be patient for the coming day of the Lord. Now this brings us to our second point. As we wait for the Lord's return, we need to follow the example of point number two, the prophets. Look at verse 10. My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And I think one of the prophets that probably hits close to the top of the list has to be that of Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah's unrelenting faithfulness in preaching God's word, never giving up, Despite not having any converts, he's cast into this empty water cistern where he was left to sink in the cold mud and die. Had it not been for the Lord using Ebed-Melech, the, the Cushite, and 30 men who gently pulled him out, he would have died stuck in the muck. I, I think of Moses, you know, with his grumbling critics. We've been reading about him in Numbers lately and they're just coming against him and complaining about him. And we're going to see that uh, this coming Wednesday night. Then there was David. Fleeing Saul, Elijah on Mount Carmel, Daniel in the lion's den. The list goes on and on and on. James's point here is that these prophets suffered not because they did anything wrong, but because what they were doing was right. For they spoke in the name of the Lord, verse 10 said. They spoke out for the Lord. I would have to say that we need more of that these days than what we're living in. There's so many people today speaking out against the Lord. We need a revival of speaking out for the Lord. You know, when things are just plain wrong and sinful, we need to let our voices be heard. As we wait for the Lord's return, we as Christians must do our part to combat the evil in this society. And one of the ways to do that is to speak out. And listen, we need to speak out with our feet. Head to the voting booth this coming Tuesday. We must fulfill our civic duty and vote because God works through His people. Yeah, we need to pray for our country, we, as we wait for the Lord's return. And yes, God moves when we pray, but God also uses His people to bring an answer to those prayers. Amir Safadi is an Israeli public figure, author, Bible teacher, Middle East news correspondent, also well known for his teaching on end times Bible prophecy. 
He said this right after Benjamin Netanyahu got reelected as prime minister of Israel, which was a good thing. He said this, quote, Our friends in the United States should take particular notice of Israel's, Israel's elections. There's no excuse for a believer to not vote. And I understand that there was some hanky-panky that took place in the last election, and that Americans rightfully have a difficult time trusting the election process. But if all the true Bible-believing church exercised their right to vote this Tuesday in favor of life and of righteousness, it would be very difficult to squash such a powerful voice. Because the impact of U.S. elections is truly felt globally, we are asking you, as we did for Israel, to join us for three days of fasting and praying for Tuesday's elections. And then he writes this, As you pray, he says, Please ask that God would restore political order, integrity, and the rule of law in America. He says that God would expose the deception of the progressive left. He says that Americans would avoid apathy and go fulfill their civil duty to vote. That American believers' eyes would be open, that they would restrain evil through God's Spirit, and they, they would commit to be change agents. I like that. That the American church would set the tone in voter turnout, that it would rise up, take courage, and act, as well as restrain. Ezra 10.4 and 2 Thessalonians 2.6, end quote. I understand. As we speak out, we will suffer persecution and maybe one day just as bad as the prophets did. But no, when they suffered, they did it with class. They did it brave, with endurance, with integrity. Verse 11 says, James said, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. Those who have persevered to death or more commonly through the multiple trials which come to committed believers over the long span of life, he calls them blessed. Not happy. Oh, I'm so happy. I mean, we'll go through this trial. No, it's not happy. It's being blessed. And that means an unalterable approval and reward of God. In other words, the smile of God rests upon a life. And then James gives us a shining example of this. Again, in verse 11. Look at verse 11. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. And think about Job. I mean, he was a man that persevered in times of extreme hardship. In fact, we may have no better example than that of Job, of a man who went through a time of great difficulty and yet came through on the other side still praising the Lord. We know his story began up in heaven. The angels of the Lord came to present themselves before God and Satan was among them. And God said to Satan, Where have you been? And he said, Going to and fro throughout the earth. Okay, he didn't say it like that. That would be... Probably doesn't have a voice like that, but we think he does, but he doesn't. But you can almost picture him. I was just going to and fro throughout the earth. And then God, you know, maybe pointing his finger to, hey, have you considered my servant Job? Kind of bragging on him a little bit. It says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? A perfect and upright man, a man who fears God and shuns evil. You know, whenever I, I think about that, I think, Lord, don't ever brag on me, please, to Satan. I mean, because <laughs> I know what happens next. Well, the devil listens and, and, and sneers. And Job 1, 9 through 11 says, uh, the devil says, Yes, but Job has good reason to fear God. You have always put a wall of protection around him and his home and his property. You have made him prosper in everything he does. Look how rich he is. But reach out and take away everything he has, and he'll surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord said in Job 1, 12, All right, you may test him. Lord said to Satan, do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. 
So Satan left the Lord's presence. So God allowed Satan to wreak havoc in Job's life. In fact, one tragedy right after another, right after another, all in one day. He wakes up in the morning, and the first thing he hears is that someone had come in, taken away all of his oxen, all of his donkeys, and killed those servants who were watching over them. Then before that man even finished his sentence, another came in and told Job that a fire came down from heaven, consumed all of his sheep and those attending servants that watched after the sheep. Then another servant came in, telling him that the Chaldeans had taken his camels, executed those servants of his that were watching the camels. And if all that wasn't bad enough, the worst news of all came that all of Job's children were dead, having died when their house fell on top of them. What could be worse than that? I mean, how would you react on a day like that? How would I react? We can only believe that God would give us the strength to get through whatever He allows to happen in our lives like that. Personally, I do not agree with the saying, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Now, there's many times I've had more than I can handle. Certainly, this one day for Job was more than he could handle. But God gives us the strength to get through whatever hardships come our way. And let me tell you, Satan wasn't through here. He appeared again before God, no doubt, very angry because Job passed his first test with flying colors. So Satan says this time to the Lord in Job 2, verse 4 through 6, Skin for skin, a man will give up everything he has to save his life. But reach out and take away his health, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord says, all right, do with him as you please. The Lord said to Satan, but spare his life. Again, Satan could not do anything to take his life because God said, you can't. And he has to listen. Now, what Satan said is generally true. In most cases, if the chips are down, if your life is on the line, you'll do anything to defend it. But you know, Job was a man of integrity. And after having all these horrible things happen to him, he now breaks out with open sores, boils all over his body, that he has to find a piece of broken pottery just to scrape the sores with. And if that wasn't bad enough, his wife turns him and says, you're still trying to hold on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? Oh, man, now my wife is even turning on me. Thanks, dear, that's just what I needed to hear. What a wife. Let me talk about the patience of Job. You know, but he doesn't charge God, God foolishly. He doesn't shout at God. He simply turned to his wife and he said this in Job 2.10, You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So on all this, Job said nothing wrong. Loved it. But to make matters worse, Job's got three so-called friends that show up. Now they haven't seen him for a while. Imagine their shock when they look at this guy, their buddy, their Job. He's a mess. Open boils, oozing, running sores, no kids, no livestock, nothing. And they're shocked just to see him there, just absolutely horrible. I mean, again, in the shape he was in. And they say nothing to him for seven days. In fact, they, they ripped their clothes and, and, and wept with him. You know what? That is one of the best things you can do when someone is suffering. The Bible says weep with those who weep. So often we think, well, I just have to have all the answers. I need some encouraging word to tell them. But sometimes our words can hurt worse than, than, than help. Sometimes the best thing to do is just be there for that person and say nothing at all. But I guess his friends after seven days felt obligated to say something. 
And yet they give some horrible counsel to him as well. They say, hey, Job, don't you just think maybe it's just you sinned. That's why all this judgment has come upon you, because you sinned. Well, that's a comforting thought. Now, God can bring hardship in our lives as a discipline as a result of sin. And we can bring hardship in our own lives as a result of violating the commandments of God. But that's not certainly always the case as illustrated in the life of Job. Job was not suffering because he was in sin. Job was suffering because he was a righteous man and God allowed him to do a work in his heart that could be done no other way. And God also allowed it in Job's life to give us an example and to show us that we too can endure hardships even if they seem overwhelming. Sure, Job has had his time of questioning. And he even said a few things that he probably shouldn't have said. Yet through it all, Job said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, I yet I will praise him. And ultimately, he came through it all and said this in Job 19, 25 and 27, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Listen, Job was human just like the rest of us, but he kept his priorities straight, and he stands as a shining example of the faithfulness and patience in trials and hardships. There are lessons that he, he, he can only learn through the valley of despair and nowhere else. And he refused to give up on his integrity, even as his wife urged him to do so. He was still blameless and upright. He never ceased believing in God. I like what commentator William Barclay said of Job. He says this, and I quote, The very greatness of Job lies in the fact that in spite of everything which tore at his heart, he never lost his grip on faith and his grip on God. Job's faith is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. The flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. It's true that God made it clear to Job that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Basically, God said in effect to Job, if you can't understand the physical world which you see now, how can you understand the moral world which you cannot see? In the end, Job said, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Again, certain things we can know intellectually. Certain things you can learn from reading then there are certain things that you can even learn from life. And I can say this is true and that is true, but when I have personally experienced it, that's a different matter altogether. Some lessons we can only learn as we go through that experience. Some lessons can only be learned through the school of hard knocks. Job came through with flying colors. And, you know, in the end, it turned out pretty well for Job. Job, God blessed him with more than he had to begin with. More possessions, more livestock, more everything. He had 7,000 sheep to begin with. God gave him 14,000 sheep afterwards. He had 3,000 camels to begin with. God gave him 6,000 camels afterwards. Now, what's interesting is that God more than doubled what Job had before in, in livestock. And, 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 but when it came to his children, he gave just 10 more, just as many as he started. Why? Why didn't God give him 20 more like everything else? Well, because Job's children lived on in eternity. He would see them again. They weren't lost. Just as Job said, I will see God with my own eyes, my heart yearns for him. He knew he would see his children again. And let me tell you, when you have a loved one that has died and has gone into heaven, no, you will see them again. Don't lose heart. Stay focused. 
and established. And remember, whatever God allows to happen in your life, know that there's a reason behind it. And as James says in verse 11, that the Lord is very compassionate and very merciful. Finally, our last point, to continue to live your life with a purpose. Number three, what is the purpose for why we are still on this earth? To tell others about Christ, plain and simple. To bring glory to God in however much time we have left on this earth. Look at verse 12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, lest you fall into judgment. Don't compromise your walk with the Lord. Don't say, yes, I believe, I follow Christ, and then when you're out with a non-believer, you say, no, 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 I'm not one of those fanatical born-againers. No, no. Be a man or woman of your word. You know, most people you know, who have to swear about something, they usually have to do that because they're a liar. <laughs> you know, you don't want to believe, oh, I swear, it's going to happen. If you're a person of integrity, you know what, you know the guy's going to tell the truth. And this is what James is saying. Continue to speak the truth. Be established, unmovable, committed to bringing glory to God no matter what hardships may come your way. It'll soon be over. Jesus is coming back. That's a great hope that the Christian has. The world doesn't offer anything like that. And let me tell you, the Lord is coming back maybe sooner than we think. Are you ready? Are you prepared? What are we to do while we wait? Be patient. God's not late. He's right on time. Establish our hearts. Get busy. Make sure we're rooted and grounded in our faith. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Don't attack other Christian brothers and sisters. Remember who the real enemy is. Look to the prophets who endured, especially Job. Never lost his faith, regardless of his circumstances. Live with a purpose that you will see Jesus one day. Maybe you're going through a time like Job right now. Maybe not be as dramatic as what he experienced haven't lost your home, your livelihood, your family, your health, but maybe you've lost one of those things. Maybe you just heard some bad news and, and, and the bottom has sort of dropped out for you. Your heart has sunk. What are you going to do? Remember, these things don't last forever. God will not forget about you in your valley of despair. He will has a work for you and He will complete in your life and when it's done, your problems will be behind you. Now, that's not to say you won't have some more problems in the future. But it's to say that God will be with you through every valley you face in this life. Remember the Bible says he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's not the author and then, oh, I just kind of forgot about Tom. No, he's, he's the finisher. God completes what he begins. He never forgets about you. Have hope. Finally, as we close and we enter into the time of communion, we're going we're gonna to pass out the elements. And there's, there's two in one cup. So you get one cup with two. If you're new here for the first time, there, there's a bread on the bottom and the juice on top. We're going to pass it out, we're going to pray, and we're going to partake together as a church. But communion, the Bible says, is for believers to remember what Christ has done for us upon the cross. If you're not a believer, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, to partake of communion, it's vain. It's useless. In fact, the Bible says you're going to bring judgment upon yourself if you partake without having that relationship with Him. And so my counsel to you is, as we pass the elements out, and if you're not a believer and, uh, and you have no mind to be one this morning, then just let the elements pass by. Just, just let it go to the next person. But here's a better solution for you. Give your life to Christ. Don't wait any longer. Jesus could come back at any moment or 
You could die at any moment. doesn't matter. Either way, you don't know how, how much long we have. Make the decision to follow Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what we can learn from here. Lord, how we know, Lord, your return is near. And how we need to be waiting patiently, expectantly, with that hope, Lord. And as we do, we need to establish our walks with you. Be firm on what we know, Lord, what we believe, knowing your word. Help us to be able to give an answer to everyone who asks the hope that lies within us, Lord. And we do pray for our country. We pray for a, 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 a huge voter turnout of believers, Lord, that are going to make a difference all across this nation to get us back on track, Lord, with godly principles and godly laws and to help stop the spread of evil in our country. So, Lord, I pray for Tuesday. I pray for your hand of favor to be upon the election, Lord. I pray for revival in our nation, Lord. I pray, Lord, for each one of us, Lord, that you would uh, use us, Lord, as we look out, that we would have your eyes, that we would see a field, Lord, just ready for the harvest, just waiting for us to come and ask that person if they want to receive Christ as their Savior. Lord, you wouldn't say it if you didn't mean it. So we know there are people out there on the verge of just needing to be asked, just wanting to have the gospel shared with them so they could respond. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that they might be in that same place. They've not surrendered their life to you, but Lord, they're ready. After hearing what you've done for them, going to the cross, rising from the dead, paying the price for our sin, offering them salvation, eternity in heaven. Maybe they're ready this morning now finally to put their faith in you. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone in here in this room this morning you want to give your life to Christ today? You want to be born again today? that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? It's just between you and the Lord, making that desire to, to, to follow Christ today. Anybody at all? Thank you, Lord, for us as believers that we can spend this time this morning, Lord, just thinking back on the cross, what you did for us. Your word says that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death until you come, Lord. And we are excited about your coming. And we want to just proclaim it one more time this morning. It's just how much we appreciate and love you through communion. So bless this time as we just focus in on you and remember what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.